Monaco and Culture is brought to you in association with the all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence electrified. The Cadillac Lyric delivers a sporty, responsive and agile drive that makes every mile a milestone. This groundbreaking Ultium EV battery platform fundamentally changes how electric vehicles are engineered, delivering charging and power storage technologies that fit seamlessly into far-reaching journeys and daily commutes. The Lyric is a vehicle that balances the sensual and the technical in masterful harmony, where rhythm, form and colour unite. From emergency braking to intelligent alerts, parking assistance to vehicle monitoring, the Cadillac Smart System suite of safety and driver assistant features, standard on the Lyric, means you'll drive with added confidence. While innovations like available supercruise driver assistance technology and Google built-in set a new standard for technical prowess. Take the next step. Head to Cadillac.com now to configure your car. The all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence Electrified. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. Now, what does the art world look like right about now? You'll be imagining artworks in historic galleries and stark white contemporary cubes and visitors made up of pretty much all the tribes of the world. Maybe. Maybe, inevitably, someone also wearing a berry and a turtleneck sweater, and that would be me. But seriously, does the art world look enough like the people looking at it? Was it made by people that might come from the city in which it sits? And how many different stories are being told on those walls. The art world likes to talk about diversity, opportunity, women, people that aren't white. Can you imagine? And museums often seem to be selling themselves as leaders in progressive political and social debates, championing voices previously unheard, at least in their hallowed halls. But is that really true? Well, two pioneering and somewhat pugnacious journalists have, since 2018, been on a mission to measure just what North American museums added to their permanent collections, what race and gender of artists made that work, and have been doing the same with the art market. What have commercial galleries and auction houses been dealing in? Who made what? What is the breakdown? These two journalists, Charlotte Burns and Julia Halperin, recently published the latest findings of their Burns-Halperin Report 2022. And, well, let's just say it makes for great reading if you're a bloke and you're white and you're called Pablo Picasso. Not so great if you're none of those things. To tell us more, then, about the report's findings, I'm joined by journalist and founder of Studio Burns, Charlotte Burns, and the arts and culture journalist, Julia Halperin. Charlotte and Julia, thank you um, both very much for coming on the programme today. It's lovely to have you on talking about the Burns Halperin Report. Now, as we're a more of a sort of general general purpose culture podcast, you're going to have to let our listeners know kind of generally what the framework and the range of the data that you've acquired is and the kind of the overall idea of the Burns Halperin Report that looks at the art world. And Julia, I'll start with you. So the idea started in 2018 when Charlotte Morat and I were in a bar, as we were wont to do at that time, uh, talking <laughs> about sort of flood of headlines in both the trade press, but also in 
Bloomberg and the New York Times about how it was a great time to be an African-American artist. This was just around the time that there was a major auction record for Basquiat and the Carrie James Marshall show at the Met. And so it was sort of the time for trend stories as journalists are, are familiar with that moment where it seems like there's some kind of cultural shift. And we were wondering, you know, if that was really true in the middle of the Trump presidency at a time when it didn't seem like a great time to be a black person in America, then the art world had something going that was extremely unique and we should figure out what that was. And if it wasn't true, then we should stop saying it. And so we came to the idea, having done a little bit of data work before, that the best way to kind of figure this out rather than just going on gut feeling was data. So we asked a range of museums, around 30 institutions, to share with us their acquisitions of work by Black American artists over the previous 10 years. You know, at the time, a lot of them didn't have that data, so they were collecting it for the first time. And what we found was that, you know, the perceptions of progress far outweighed reality. And so that sort of set us on this five-year journey of chronicling these collections to the extent that we could. The second time around in 2019, we looked at work by female identifying artists. And this latest report sort of brings both data sets together with a broader range of institutions and a broader kind of geographical swath of the United States and brings it up through the end of 2020. Okay, so it's, it's a rigorous thing. I'm glad that the idea for such a noble pursuit came from you and Charlotte hanging out in a bar. I think that all these, all great, all great progressive ideas have to start over Negronis. I think you have um, to be a little to want to pursue something like this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Let's do a report that no one really wants us to find the true answers to. No biggie. Um, yes, it sounds like drink was required. Um, Charlotte, maybe you can fill us in then on the findings that those original findings and five years later, after you've gotten used to, to looking at these data sets, what's revealed in this in this latest, in the 2022 burns Halpern report, and if you've really seen much progress? Well, the short answer is no. We've not seen much progress. They're slightly different data sets. We've got different museums. We ask them slightly different questions. So you can't do an exact comparison of the 2018 report to the 2022 one. Because another way of saying that is that we learned what we were doing wrong along the way. And I'm sure that we've learned other things this year, too, that we would probably do differently next time around. So we got to the end of this and this data set, like Julia said, it, it was a much bigger data set, more museums, more years. And plus another data set that we do in tandem is looking at the market. And that's an international auction market. So we look at everything that's sold at any auction all around the world. Um, and this year we look from 20, 2008 to midway through 2022. And so we track the museum progress and we track those artists through the market. And we also look at galleries and we ask them to tell us some of the lead galleries, their representation, how many artists they represent and what that what those artists uh, represent in terms of revenue for the gallery. And so when Julia and I got to the end of this, it took us about two years to gather all the data. We had a moment of sort of quite twisted humour where we realised we'd done all this work and sort of ended up in the same place. We had these different museums. We had di slightly different questions. We had different years. And we were really looking at the same thing. Essentially, if you look at black American artists in American museums, it's just 2.2% of the work that was acquired. And so... When we say acquired for a general audience, what that means is the things that the museums 
buy or are gifted. We're talking about two different things there. It's anything that enters the permanent collections of these institutions. What are they keeping for the rest of posterity? What do they think is worth saving from culture? Just 2.2% of everything that entered those institutions, which is more than 350,000 works, were by black American artists, which is around a fifth of what it ought to be if you looked at the demographics of America as your kind of guiding figure or just as a reference figure. For female artists, it was 11% of acquisitions at the 31 museums we looked at were female identifying artists, which again is around a fifth of what it should be. That's just a weird coincidence that those numbers are both a fifth. When we looked at black American female artists, the numbers were even worse. They represented 0.5%, so not even a full percent of everything that had gone into the museums, meaning they were underrepresented by around a factor of 13 if you looked at their population in the US. So we saw that there aren't seismic shifts in the time that we've been looking at, which obviously has been through these pandemic years, through the George Floyd summer, and through these moments where it seems that museums really have committed or you know, have outwardly committed to creating more progress. The numbers aren't really changing drastically, despite that. And there's reasons why that we can go into. But when we look at the market, you can see that there's been a bit more change. The numbers have changed a little faster, but they're actually even smaller. So the museums overall are doing a better job than the market, but the market is changing a little more quickly. It's fascinating stuff. And, 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 and thank you for spelling it out for our listeners so simply and concretely like that, Charlotte, because it's, really, it's a really fascinating thing. I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about the market. But before I do that, I'd like to just sort of crystallise some of the ideas that come out of your report and have done over the years, the, the five years or so since you started doing it. And it seems like the central tenet of the survey is essentially a story of representation in the United States, which has a lot of different stories, races, and half the population, obviously, are women. So is that the broad brushstrokes of what you've found? And I'll stay with you, Charlotte, for this one, that it's a story of representation, or perhaps we we should say misrepresentation of the stuff we see in museums. Yeah, um, you know, we wanted to look at progress. We thought we were tracking progress. We thought that there had been more change than actually has happened. So when we began this, we we thought we were going to be looking at how progress happened. And what we realised is that there wasn't a lot of progress happening, that the perception of change in the art world, the perception that the art world has of itself as being this sort of liberal bastion of progressive values, of diversity and inclusion, of an enlarged canon, um, really wasn't the case. And there are reasons for this. It's not to say that people aren't trying, but overall the structures and the systems are not changing. So if you are a young black female artist, you are much less likely to be able to have your work sold on the market, to be able to have museums acquire your work, to have collectors gift that work to institutions than if you were a young white man. That's just the reality of the numbers. It, it is about representation, but it's really telling us about what we value, you know, what whose stories are worth keeping, who we call a genius, who's allowed to be mediocre and still have a really great career. And who has to be thoroughly excellent to get anywhere? Um, yeah, we can see it in the market as well in terms of what people are buying and in terms of what the market wants. I mean, the market for one man alone is worth more than the entire market for all female artists. So sales of work by Pablo Picasso since 2008 
were 6.23 billion. Art by women, all women, at all auctions in this period of time, was 6.2 billion. So Picasso is more valuable, one man, according to the market, than every single female artist who ever sold work in the period that we look at. That's a bon- it's an amazing statistic. It really is. Um, and it's amazing stuff because we can all have hunches about how the art world works and what the art world say says it's doing. And and all three of us, you know, have have, uh, have a lot, uh, are inundated with a lot of press releases from institutions and commercial galleries alike that, you know, about different things and that things are changing. But it's amazing to, to hear bald statistics Um um, like that. And now, Charlotte, you mentioned the acquisition policies of museums, who buys art from museums. Julie, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Like, Who does actually acquire art from museums? Uh, and do those people lean on the directors and curators of museums to essentially put on shows of their favourite artists who often tend to be old geezers? Um, is, is that the fact of the matter? And actually, who does buy this stuff or acquire this stuff from museums? Well, it's interesting because when we were working on the women's study in 2019, a bunch of different people that we interviewed initially said, you know, oh, well, the reason that the numbers for women are so dismal is because the museum boards are the ones who ultimately decide what gets acquired and they're they're all men. Uh, so every museum has a board of directors Um, who are basically the boss of the museum director. And they make the ultimate decision about what enters the collection and what doesn't. And so after hearing that a bunch of times, we decided, okay, this is a data study. We should check. And so we looked at the makeup of the boards across around 30 institutions and found that, in fact, it was probably the one place in American art museums where there was parity. Um, It was about 50-50 men and women on the boards. Um, And so that also sort of taught us not to lean on the easy explanation that it is much more about power and influence and ties to an established system than it is about just having the right demographics in the room to make change. And so you know, the boards are ultimately the ones that make this decision. And there are other systemic elements that can kind of help keep things the way they are. One example is that anytime a curator wants to propose something uh, to enter the collection, one of the things that they have to do is explain why this work should be at this museum. So how this work relates to the collection that's already there in the institution. And so already you're starting from a place where rewriting history is really hard uh, because museums want what they're acquiring to relate to what they already own. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating stuff. And and I suppose it's the change of the guard in the boardrooms that would be a sort of central would be a central thing just to 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 flesh out the idea of of your report there is there's there's the raw data which is fascinating and and you've and you've you've had it beautifully illustrated as well so it's very easy to to absorb you've also got you've got op-eds from different people stakeholders and critics and curators in the art world um, and you've got artists and critics responding to your findings as well. And Charlotte, I wanted to ask you, I mean, one is the artist Paul Rucker, and he says um, on your website that museums often program exhibitions, you know, that they think are going to be hits. 
in terms of ticket sales and they have a kind of responsibility to, to do that in a way but that's often not helpful to the communities as a whole that might like to use that museum as a place to, to be and helpful to the city as a whole people that might live next door to that museum might have absolutely no no interest in the kind of in the kind of uh, uh, shows that are that might be big ticket numbers I mean Paul Ruck is saying what he's saying I think he says it very eloquently on your website but do you sort of find that you can see the kind of bind that museums might be in? I think if you work in a museum right now, you're in a really tough spot because, you know, if you take several steps back from it, what you could also say is that museums represent this sort of battleground that's happening, that's playing out in broader culture. And you and I have talked about this a lot, Rob, but this idea that, um, Museums have come to take on a different role in today's society because there are so few civic institutions left. Particularly if you think about America, you really have libraries, public spaces, and you have museums. And so there aren't many spaces where you can go to argue um, and disagree and debate and come across different ideas and be expected to um, entertain them, be expected to consider what that other idea might be. And I think that we're seeing much less of that, you know, with the collapse of media and all of these things. And so museums have... Um, a hugely different role than they did in, you know, the 18th century, for example, when there was this kind of enlightenment idea of educating the plebs, basically. And so they've expanded, they have these missions that are very publicly minded, very civic minded, and they talk a lot about the growth of the audience. And that became a real metric for success was this idea of the public, of everybody coming into a museum, of being art for all. And it drove the success of museums like Tate and MoMA, and I think you get to the stage now where the internet um, means that you can't sort of speak down to people. You can't just assume that your public wants to see what you're going to show it because your public will tell you 24-7 on the internet whether it agrees with what you're doing or not. So I think museums are in a really difficult position. They're trying to be publicly minded, but there's not that much public money. And so they are funded privately. And this is also the case in the UK. There's not that much public funding anymore. And so... It's, it's a really difficult spot to be in because you're trying to please lots of different people and, you know, essentially function as a as a sort of microcosm of, of democracy and what that means to be a functioning democracy. It, it's a more existential moment, I think, for museums of what they are, who they are for and what they want to be, how they stay relevant in a changing world. Do they want to become these sort of precious jewel boxes of objects from the past that we keep in climate controlled conditions while the world burns? Do they want to be social spaces, gathering spaces, a space for the exchange of ideas? And they're trying to figure that out, I think. Yeah, so just, I mean, just to stick with you, Charlotte, for that, it's an interesting thing you mentioned about the sort of philanthropic class that, you know, in the, in the absence of public money in institutions, rich people f fund a lot of the goings on in museums. And that, that's definitely a, a, an Anglo-American thing more than, a, more than perhaps a European thing. And it always has been historically, I guess, mostly. But... Is that the case then? That we're basically looking at the taste of these of these the philanthropic class. That's what we tend to see on the walls of the of of the big museums, especially in the United States. Um, and that it's a change to the model as a whole that needs to happen in order to, for any idea of the press release of progress for for it to be truthfully written. It really needs the, the philanthropic class and their taste um, or their desires um, needs to change. 
I don't think we've even grappled with the question of what progress means. Why do we want progress? Is something that one of our op-ed writers, Naomi Beckworth, who's a deputy director at the Guggenheim Museum, talked about. This is a conversation that a lot of museums aren't even having. There's this sense of this movement towards progress, but not a real grappling with the profound questions of why. Why do people want change? What does it mean to be a diverse institution? What does it mean to expand and enlarge the canon to reconsider value, essentially? And how do you do that? How do you pay for that? How do you um, habituate that? Do you try and, you know, bring those objects in and keep them in this and talk about them in the same language? You know, do you apply Western art theoretical concepts to art from Sudan like how do you do that and it's really complicated um how do you pay for that how do you conserve that in a moment of climate crisis how do you bring your staff on board how do you what do you do with everything that you owned before that's sitting in storage do you keep building big buildings so yeah it is a taste of the philanthropic class but it's kind of bigger than that it's a taste of that period of that we've been in for decades now of the expansion of the museum of this idea of art for all that now in the internet age in in this moment of true internet age and true technology is just really shifting and and like julia said at the beginning of all of this it's just an enormous generational shift and um that in terms of what people want in terms of what people want to see and that's a story as old as time. Um, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. I'm glad that we've got. I'm glad that we started off with Negronis in a bar in New York, and we've come to <laughs> come to questions as old as time. But that is what the thing is. And, and I should say that your report makes fascinating reading. A lot of the editorial built around it as well is excellent. You've got some wonderful people there being very honest and very thoughtful. Julia Halperin and Charlotte Burns. Power to your elbow. Thank you for putting together this amazing um, report. We'll point people towards it at the end of the programme. And also, Charlotte, to um, to your Hope and Dread podcast as well, which which addresses some of these things, but is a, very much a kind of a sideshow to the Burns Halpern report. But for the time being, thank you very much uh, both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. <laughs> Next up, we speak to Farah Nayeri, author of last year's Takedown about power in the art world. And she's also a culture writer for The New York Times. You might remember we spoke to Farah about this time last year about that book, Takedown. And today we wanted to hear from Farah about the landscape set out in the Burns Halperin report. Farah, it's wonderful to have you uh, on the on the show again. It's almost a year anniversary since we uh, had you on to talk about Takedown. And we're sort of, um, we're discussing similar topics again. Um, we just spoke to Julia and Charlotte and the Burns Halperin report and, uh, and, and what it's dished up and, and talking about diversity and 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 the, the way that museums look and feel and, and sort of behave in the in the in the in the present day um and it feels like that could almost be an epilogue to your book actually for and i wonder what you what you felt about that whether you're surprised at the findings of the report with all the pressure born on museums and and the and the spotlight focused on them whether they still feel like uh, ocean liners culturally that need to need to be turned around i wonder if you're surprised with the with the report 
Well, first of all, it's a great pleasure to be back with you, Rob. Uh, thank you for hosting me a year ago when I um, when my book was coming out, and thank you for hosting me again. Yes, this is definitely a very, very interesting and important update to the book. Um, I can't say that I don't find it contradicts the book, and I will ex be explaining that shortly, but um, I think that I was slightly shocked by some of the statistics, uh, the fact that, you know, only, um, you know, the art in 30 museums, uh, only 11% of it is art by women, and only something like 2.2% is art by black artists, and one would have expected more given the movements that I describe in the book of inclusivity. However, um, I have to say that a, a kind of note of caution was uh, rung in my book by um, Coco Fusco, the great American art historian, artist, um, academic. I mean, she I quote her, and this was in the book, uh, the basic imbalance is still there. The composition of museum collections is still weighted heavily in favor of dead white men. That hasn't changed yet. And she says, I don't even know if it will change at all because the art world is like the advertising world. It's all about show, but that show also asks, acts as a mask for what goes on behind. And I mean, I, I completely, you know, I mean, I obviously quoted her uh, saying that, and so obviously um, needed to include that insight in the book. However, I would just be a little bit more optimistic than Coco is. In other words, I don't think that, I don't agree that we're um, basically witnessing a case of plus a change and a case of, oh, you know, all this inclusivity stuff and all this diversity and all this promoting of women that followed the Harvey Weinstein scandal and all this promoting of African-American and black artists that followed the uh, George Floyd um, killing. I don't think that this has all just been for show and that just we've had, you know, a few, you know, brief moments of showcasing of women and black artists. And then we're going to go back to our great old ways and showing only white male artists. I just don't think that this is going to happen. I think that as Anne Temkin, the chief curator of MoMA says in the epilogue to my book, the genie is out of the bottle. And it's a quote that I keep using and that I will use again today because the genie really is out of the bottle, Rob. I mean, I just don't know how you're going to stuff all of these great women artists who have been brought out uh, into the limelight, uh, how you could stuff them all back into the bottle. You know, I take the long view. I always take the long view. <laughs> and of course, I, I live on statistics such as those that the Burns-Halperin has provided. In fact, the previous version of the Burns-Halperin report opens my chapter on women. But I take the long view, as I said, and uh, I really don't think that this compromises the overall prognosis that I've given in the book, which is to say that we are experiencing, nevertheless, something of um, a revolution in the world of art and museums. Well, Farah, you, you mentioned the long view, and I'm going <laughs> to I know open, a, open a, a, a historical can of worms, if I may. And that is sure. the idea. I mean, you, you write, you write uh, brilliantly about the Medici's, the Renaissance, uh, a pope's kind of getting very uh, up in arms with certain artists um, in centuries past. And I wondered if you felt that there has any, any historical precedent for 
what we now call cultural institutions, but what might have been the the, the, the collections of paintings of, of cathedrals and of, and of great royal houses and courts and things like that in the past, of looking in the mirror and wondering if they were looking enough like their constituent voices uh, that, that they, in short, looked as diverse enough as some of the audience that went and came and looked and visited and genuflected at these artistic altars. Is there any historical precedent for that, I wonder? Well, <clears throat> there is historical precedent, but art, as, as I explained in the book, is a reflection of a politics. And the politics pre-20th century was definitely not in any way democratic. So those people who were in power did not feel in any way like they needed to justify buying this artist or showing that sculpture or showing, you know, this or that. They had no one to answer to but themselves. They had absolute power, whether they were dictators, uh, whether they were popes or princes or nobility. Um, you know, there was nobody above them. So they really weren't answerable. As I explain in the book, art is power. And art goes hand in hand with whatever the politics of the day is. And the politics of the day, at least in the West, has been democracy for quite a number of decades now. And so democracy has meant that, yes, museums, I think, you know, most definitely when the civil rights movement broke out in the United, uh, United States, most definitely you had museums re-examining their collections. I think you've had museums all over the Western world that have re-examined re -examined and re-re-examined their collections across the decades because they feel that they need to be reflective of the populations that they serve. Now, you mentioned um, in an earlier answer that you sort of said the genie is out the bottle uh, and you were, I think, maybe quoting Coco Fusco uh, in your book on, on that. And um, and it's and it's an interesting idea that there is simply too much talent of, of all sorts that the, the, the talent that was not high highlighted and given a given a picture frame in previous centuries that that stuff is now available for for you know for general consumption in, in art institutions and indeed in art fairs across the world right now. Um, and I wonder whether I wonder whether that sort of is your experience of visiting visiting art institutions because as we as we seen seen from the report it feels that there is still uh, you know it seems like black and female artists and uh, are still feel like they're the sort of underneath of the underneath of the iceberg in your personal uh, experience of visiting museums and and fairs and and writing about them. Is that how it feels to you, actually, Farah? Do you get a kind of, um, we've got the facts and figures of the, of the Halp Burns Halpern report, but as a sort of hunch, as a journalist, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an art lover, does it feel that, uh, that this stuff is still sort of hiding in plain sight? I think that what they are referring to is the permanent collections, which really is where the change should be happening for it to be entrenched and for it to be long term. I think what Coco Fusco says in the book, she explains that until we have non-white male artists who are in the permanent collections and until we have those kinds of people on the boards of museums, that this change is not going to happen. And I think that that's what we're seeing right now with the findings of the report. I mean, basically, a lot of these works of art that were acquired in the last couple of years or the last few that come up in the statistics of the Burns-Halpern report have been gifted 
So there is a major lag here. I mean, the gifts are coming from people, wealthy individuals who were collecting in, you know, years and decades past and who were not yet, you know, diverse in their collections and weren't, you know, buying women artists or buying African-American work. So the permanent collections of these museums, which is what they're talking about, are not changing fast enough because the acquisitions that are made by these museums are very, very slow. Thanks, Farah. And just finally, I'd like to bring it back actually to the opening line of your book from last year, which is Art is Power. It's a pithy opening. <laughs> it got it got our juices flowing almost a year ago on this program. And I just finally wanted to ask you if you feel that that power looks that the art is still entirely reflective of power, but whether that power looks slightly different a few years down the line and, and during the writing and publishing of your book and a year after its publication now, that that power maybe is wielded by people in a different way, that it might not be the Bernard Arnaud's, the big art collectors. And I wondered how true you thought that is or whether that art is power still stands as an opening line to the book, but that it's still essentially... Uh, concentrated in the in still in the in the kind of the hands that that you saw in in the researching of that book. Uh, no, I think that the whole content, uh, the the whole argument that I've set forth in the book is that art is power, and the power today is wielded by the likes of you and me. In other words, by citizens, by voters, by people who basically are served by those collections, by those museums, and by people whose voices and whose views and whose tastes need to be reflected because we live in representative democracies. I mean, the whole model of representative democracy is we need to reflect the folks who come and visit us because we need to get more folks through the door. And so if you want to be more reflective of your society, then necessarily you are going to be listening more and more to those voices. And because those voices are now expressing themselves through direct democracy in the form of social media and creating hashtags and communities and going out there and making noise, and that creates change. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that art is power remains true, and I think it always will remain true. But if we're calling the shots, museums cannot be tin-eared and, you know, once again, I really don't think they can go back to the way things were. And reports like the Burns Halpern report are incredibly important because they're holding the, the, you know, museums feet to the fire in a very, very major way. I mean, this is not a very edifying result for these museums who are making out that they're the most diverse institutions around. I mean, the numbers are really bad. And I think that a lot of these museums are going to be going back and doing some soul searching as a result of the report and its publication and release. I think that we're on the right track, that change is slow and that there are disappointing numbers, such as the ones that we're discussing, but that the overall long-term trend is definitely positive And I continue to view this as something of a slow but important revolution. Well, hallelujah to that, Farah. Thank you very much <laughs> indeed. The genies are out the bottle and we like what they do. Um, yes. Farah Neri, um, thanks once again uh, very much for your time on today's programme. Thank you so much, Rob, for hosting me again. 
And that is all for this week. My thanks to Charlotte Burns, Julia Halprin and Farah Nayeri. And you can find the report itself by searching for it. Burns Halprin has its own website with attendant essays and material. And much can also be found on artnet.com. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph chung And Steph also edits the programme. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. Thank <laughs> you.